Another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, originating in San Francisco and delivered to your earbuds via the Internet. Our program is supported by listeners, and I want to thank three of them today who are subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show. Russell Archibald, Raymond Welch, and one of my longtime listeners from back in Chicago radio, Mark Brodsky of Lake Zurich, Illinois. Thank you one and all. And if you'd like to help support this program, just go to PeterBCollins.com and click on the tab that says you can help. We're going to devote this podcast program today to a single subject and a single guest. Jeffrey Haas is the author of a powerful new book that takes us back 40 years to the counterintelligence program whose architect was the FBI boss J. Edgar Hoover. It was called Cointelpro, and one of its victims was a charismatic young African-American named Fred Hampton. He was murdered by the Chicago police with help from the FBI on December 4th, 1969. And Jeffrey Haas became an attorney for the family members who fought in the courts for years and years and years and finally won a settlement from the U.S. government for the wrongful death of Fred Hampton. All this is recounted in a new book called The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther. And as you'll hear, some of this is personal for me and takes me back to, well, my days in Chicago. And the song I'm playing right now is Freddy's Dead. It's not about Fred Hampton, but it's from that era. Curtis Mayfield was a powerful singer and songwriter in Chicago. This song actually came from one of those ugly black exploitation films called Superfly. I graduated from high school in Cincinnati in 1971, and I was well aware of what happened in the streets of Chicago in 1968 when they hosted the Democratic Convention. And this song is part of my memory. Graham Nash's opening reference there. 
to the trial of the Chicago 8. And Bobby Seale, who was bound and gagged in the courtroom by Judge Julius Hoffman. With the benefit of historical hindsight, we know that much of what we were told by the government and the media during that era was flatly false. It was not the weathermen, the SDS, and the protesters who rioted in Chicago. It was a police riot. And the original Mayor Daley, Boss Daley, famously malapropped at the time, the police are here to preserve disorder. And as you'll hear this hour, much of what we were told about the Black Panthers and about Fred Hampton in particular was flatly untrue and was part of a government conspiracy that was seen by the white leadership at the time as an appropriate response to the threat of black power. And you'll hear about the memos that came from J. Edgar Hoover, that were initialed as read and received by the special agent in charge in Chicago, about the need to disrupt black nationalist movements and to prevent the rise of a new black messiah. Jeffrey Haas is retired now in New Mexico. He spent four and a half years writing this book And I really want to recommend it to you, not because of my personal interest, but because it's an important part of our history and an important cautionary tale about the police state tactics that have been imposed since 2001. The Patriot Act, the national security letters that allowed the FBI to investigate and detain people without warrants and to gag them when their library files or their credit files or other information about them are intercepted by the government. Jeffrey Haas, thanks for joining us today. Peter, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, and Jeff, uh, this story touches me in many ways, as you can tell. Um, I did not, I I don't recall meeting you uh, at the time of the various legal actions that were taken on behalf of the survivors of Fred Hampton and Mm -hmm. the Panthers who were killed. But I did meet your colleague, Flint Taylor, and I had a late-night radio show, a talk show, on WDAI, which was WLS-FM. It was owned by ABC Radio. And I do recall doing several segments, several programs, about the Hampton case. And uh, Flint Taylor shared some of those memos with me that you recount in the book. And so it's something that, as I've mentioned here, I think is very important for people 
who were not in Chicago, who were not aware of the depth of this government plot, that they understand what happened then, and it gives us a snapshot of what's happening now but is not within our view because of the way the government uh, uses state secret privileges and other uh, advantages, leverages that they have to prevent us from knowing what they're actually doing. I'd like you to start by telling us who Fred Hampton was and how you met him and why he was such a significant figure that he became a target of the FBI and the state's attorney, the prosecutor, in Chicago. Fred Hampton uh, grew up in a suburb on the west side of Chicago in Maywood. And from an early age, uh, Fred just could not accept injustice. Um, As a matter of fact, when he was a kid, he used to go around his neighborhood and gather the kids and get breakfast food and bring everybody over to his house in the morning and make breakfast, and Fred sort of started his own Breakfast for Children program when he was 10 years old. Some of those kids didn't get food at home um, in the morning. And Fred also uh, modeled himself after other leaders. He memorized the speeches of Dr. King and Malcolm X. He overcame a, a, a lisp he had because he had knocked out a couple of front teeth knocked out in a fall. So he practiced his uh, repertory, and as a matter of fact, nobody, nobody took on his, his mouth is what people used to tell me. Uh, and they used to say he called him uh, Peanut Head, and he had a big head. Um, so uh, Fred, early on, uh, sort of saw himself as a spokesperson for the for people who who needed uh, who were oppressed. He went to high school, and the first thing he did is he led a, a walkout uh, because black girls were not being considered for homecoming queen. Mm-hmm. And the next year, one was selected. And throughout high school, he was demanding more teachers, uh, more black teachers, more black administrators. Black kids were being summarily dismissed from the school, and Fred fought against that. And he also had the respect of the black and the white kids in the high school. Principal would call on him when there were racial disturbances. Another thing Fred did is he organized the community because there was no place in Maywood where black kids could swim. The white kids could go to a nearby private veterans park, but they didn't allow blacks. So uh, at age of about 17, Fred led a march to the Maywood City Council demanding a recreation center and a swimming pool. And, uh, that mar- and, and when uh, about 150 came, when 75 were let in and Fred went in to argue why they should open up the doors and let everyone in, uh, the police panicked and fired tear gas, and the other 75 ran away and broke some windows. The next day, the police charged Fred uh, with mob action and criminal damage to property even though he wasn't there. Now, we've learned, I even learned this since the book was written in 1967, this march that the young Fred Hampton led before there was even a Black Panther Party in Illinois. Uh, Hoover march, uh, noticed this march and wrote a memo to the White House, the State Department, and the Department of the Army talking about this young militant in Maywood who was organizing people. And then Fred sort of followed very much along the lines of the movement. He marched with Dr. King on the west side of Chicago. When somebody with him got spat upon, he said, I'm not going to be a nonviolent person anymore when the counter-protesters are allowed to use violence. And he also became part of the Black Power Movement. He collected books on black history. And in 1968, he was uh, very close with Stokely Carmichael and Rap Bound of SNCC. And they were in Chicago, and Fred introduced them. In early 69, they joined the Panther Party, or, um, or late 68. And so when Bobby Rush, who's now a congressman and was then in SNCC, mm-hmm. came back from California and started a Panther Party in Chicago, and 
November of 68. The first person he recruited was Fred Hampton because he knew what a dynamic speaker he was and what a good organizer he was. So the Panthers started in, in, the, in, the, in uh, late 19, uh, November of, of 68. They started with a breakfast program. Um, they were served, many kids went to school hungry uh, in Chicago, and the, there was no provisions for, the, for giving them food in the morning. The Panthers started a breakfast program in the Better's Boys Foundation. The night before it was supposed to open, the police raided the Panther office and urinated all over the food. Um, but it sort of backfired because the Panthers put out the word, and they actually raised enough money and were eventually able to open several Breakfast for Children programs. Um, and Fred was a spokesperson for the program, for selling newspapers, for the political education classes, and they also had a program for community control of police because police brutality was a way of both harassing young black people and also harassing this fledgling uh, youth organization, the Panthers, who were trying to serve the community and organize in the community. Well, and, and Jeff, I want to interject a little yeah. story here because uh, the police were brutal to white people, too. And my, my first experience, uh, I went to Northwestern after I graduated from high school. And as a senior in high school, I drove from Cincinnati to Chicago for my visit and to apply and, you know, get my references and all that. And uh, one night, uh, my friend from Ohio and I were, were driving uh, near the loop. And uh, it was my first time there driving. I mean, I'd been to Chicago a few times, but not behind the wheel. And I got lost. And I was on the Congress Expressway heading west, and I saw the post office there, and people who know this scene know that you drive under the post office, and then, zip, you're on the Eisenhower Expressway, heading west toward uh, Maywood, Oak Park, Forest Park, the western suburbs. And so as I figured out that I was about to get on a freeway and I had no idea where it was going, I made a U-turn. And immediately the blue and white with that uh, curious phrase, to serve and protect, pulled me over, and it was my first encounter with a Chicago cop. And he tried to shake me down. And I'm a 17-year-old I'm a kid with long hair, Ohio driver's license, uh, Ohio uh, plates. And he figures, you know, I'm good for 50 bucks or something like that. Only I didn't have any cash with me. <laughs> I had a, a gasoline credit card my dad had given me to, to keep the tank full. And uh, we were staying with friends. I think I had $15. And so the cop asked me to empty my wallet on the hood of his car. And so I did. And he said, you're here from Ohio and you've got 15 bucks? And I explained what I just told you. And then he said, you know, I, I should lock you up in the shithouse. Those were his exact words. I'll never forget them. And I was scared. <laughs> I really was. I knew the reputation of the cops, uh, particularly from 68. And uh, so I just, uh, I didn't actually get on my knees, but I think I begged him. And uh, after scaring the bejesus out of me, uh, he let me and my friend go. But that was something I will never forget, and I'm sure many residents and visitors to Chicago have similar stories. So the, the cops had a, a great uh, feeling of intimidation that they projected to the public, and the graft and corruption was certainly well beyond the shakedown of a kid who made a, a, an illegal U-turn. <laughs> well, you're right. Of course, the Chicago police were notorious for corruption. And the, uh, we started the People's Law Office in 1969 and basically made a living suing Chicago police for brutality. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they never admitted it, and they never were prosecuted for it. 
uh, either criminally and usually weren't disciplined for it. And, you know, with, other than civil remedies, the, the public had no recourse uh, when they were shaken down or in the case more frequently of, of black and Hispanic kids would, you know, have get beaten up pretty badly by the police. And the force was not integrated to any great extent. Uh, even in, in 1969 and the early 70s, it was largely a white, uh, Irish, and Italian, uh, very close-knit fraternity. Absolutely. And uh, even though uh, it, it did integrate over the years, uh, I think the, the attitude of the police towards the civilians uh, didn't really change that much. Mm-hmm. Now, take a moment here to describe the dimensions of the Black Panther Party, because it, it was blown up in a way, and, and some of the, uh, the leaders of the party, particularly on the West Coast, were a little more thuggish uh, in the eyes of, of uh, frightened white people, and uh, they were exercising their right to bear arms. And there was a famous scene at the courthouse in Oakland uh, where a group of Panthers showed up uh, heavily armed. I believe there was also a scene in Sacramento. Uh, and this was played in the, the newspapers, which were very important, more important then than they are now, and uh, on television as a real threat to the ruling class of this country. You're right. Uh, it, was, it was legal to carry guns in California. And for a while, the Panthers actually uh, drove in cars and followed the police around uh, and stood there and watched to make sure that they didn't brutalize people in Oakland. And from there, they did go to the legislature and entered with guns, which they had a right to do, um, and uh, argued against uh, a, you know, a community or control of weapons. And, of course, that image of, of the Panthers at Sacramento at the State House in California was sent around the world. For white people, it was, it was uh, many white people saw it as very frightening. Uh, to young blacks, it was an example of standing up to the system, uh, a system which had seen uh, Malcolm X and Dr. King and the Kennedys murdered, yeah. a system where there had been riots in cities, a system where the civil rights movement, whereas it had made great progress in the South, hadn't contained the conditions. For black people in northern cities or in cities generally very much. And so there was an anger there. And, and uh, of course, then there was the reaction by the police. So, yes, it was, a very, it was a very tumultuous time, as you mentioned. Of course, the Democratic Convention was in 68 in Chicago, where the police rioted and attacked the demonstrators in front of the convention. And the protesters were, of course, protesting Lyndon Johnson and the war in Vietnam. And the police uh, attacked them for expressing their anti-war views. And and Fred Hampton, though, was a little different. Uh, part of it was, uh, I think, the the legal framework about the right to carry uh, in Illinois and Chicago in particular. And maybe you can uh, talk about that a little bit. But also, you recount in the book several times where uh, you where where he confronted this uh, planted FBI informant who was trying to provoke them with the building of an electric chair and the gathering of uh, a large cache of arms. And it appears to me that Hampton believed in in self-defense, but was not uh, as offensive or aggressive as the West Coast Panthers when it came to to guns and and arming themselves. That's true, and I've I've even heard stories since then that there were people, people said, well, I walked into the Panther office and I said, give me a gun, and Fred said, Hampton, well... But Hampton says, no, you're not going to give your gun, but you can get out there and sell newspapers and go to political education classes. 
And so I think Fred saw the Panthers as an educational body, somebody who stood up for the police in, in, in situations of self-defense, but not somebody who urged people to attack the police. Um, of course, the Panther rhetoric was very strong, things like off the pig, whereas for the Panthers, they meant get the police out of the community that prey on our young people, but uh, that's not necessarily how the police interpreted it. Yeah, the language was certainly very strong and uh, strident, e- even um, confrontational uh, to untrained white ears. Right. And talk a little bit about how you interacted with Fred Hampton and were you frightened of the Panthers as you first met them and before the December murder of Hampton? Well, I, I had an evolution, too. I went to the University of Chicago Law School in the 60s in the middle of the black community of Chicago. Um, and I went down, actually worked down south for a civil rights lawyer named Howard Moore for a while. And I sort of became, and, and I marched with Dr. King in 67, downtown Chicago, where he first came out against the war. And so we saw a convergence of the civil rights, black power, and anti-war movement going on. And I was very much moved by those things, and so I didn't see the Panthers as a threat. I saw them as a viable alternative, something that captured the imagination of young black people, both lost, both students and uh, people in the community. So I wanted to be a Panther lawyer. Now, this, as I said, this was after some period of evolution, uh, that, that, that I did this, but we started the People's Law Office in the summer of 69 so that we could be the lawyers for the Panthers and the Young Lords Organization and the Young Patriots and the anti-war movement. So I wasn't, and then I guess because of that, uh, Fred, uh, it was very important for the Panthers to have lawyers, and there weren't so many lawyers willing to help them because they were getting harassed and arrested every other day. And there weren't very many black lawyers. And there weren't so many black lawyers. Now, many of the black lawyers in Chicago did come to the aid of the Panthers, uh, but we joined them and we, when we started the People's Law Office, and we sort of became the day-to-day foot soldiers on the, on the arrests of the Panthers. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about the breakfast program and the other activities of the Black Panther Party. Uh, Hampton carried the title of chairman, and I'm not sure whether he was elected or simply was seen uh, almost by default as the guy with the skills to be their leader. Well, he, I, he probably was appointed initially by Bobby Rush, who was the defense minister. But I think Fred uh, achieved the leadership by virtue of, of his charisma, the fact that he could move and excite people and energize people. And also his practice, he was not just a commander. If he asked if he asked people to get to the breakfast program at six o'clock, he would be there making the breakfast, serving the children. He didn't ask people to do things that he personally wasn't able to do. So I think it was a natural evolution. Uh, technically, I think in the Panther Party, the defense minister is higher than the than the chairman. But in fact, in Chicago, Fred became the the spokesperson, and they everybody recognized him as the leader of the Panthers. And was there a political arm of this? Were they trying to recruit candidates? Were they trying to support candidates who were sympathetic uh, to those calling for desegregation and an end to the violence against black people? I don't know that they... I mean, they had uh, the support of some political people in Chicago. I don't know that they were uh, very much into supporting electoral politics uh, in 68 and 69. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think they thought more about organizing the community, uh, demanding community control of police, 
uh, or setting up programs themselves to show people what a government or a more socialist government could do and why the government should be serving the people, um, not attacking or harassing the people. And the breakfast program really was the centerpiece. The breakfast program was the outreach program. And uh, it allowed, uh, it, it put the Panther members in touch with the community. People saw their kids being served. Community members got to participate in the breakfast program. Um, and as Fred said, we don't have to talk about socialism. We are proving socialism. Mm-hmm. And so the idea, all of a sudden, you know, the theory was, well, when people come and see what we're doing, they should say, well, why shouldn't our kids get a free breakfast, pro- breakfast every morning? And so, it was an, you know, there was definitely an educational component to the breakfast program, and it was an outreach program, and it captured the imagination of, of many people, both in the black community and, and supporters of the Panthers. And I, I can't place uh, which came first, but Lyndon Johnson's Great Society uh, legislation included uh, subsidized meals, lunches, and breakfasts for uh, uh, under uh, low-income uh, and poverty uh, communities. Uh, did the Panther program basically set the model for that, or was it something that came after the legislation? My recollection is the Panthers had started that program on the West Coast, uh-huh. and it was an early program of theirs and a very popular program. 66, and, 67? Yes. Uh-huh. And so I think when L- Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, he, he was copying their program. That's, that's really very interesting. Now take us to uh, the summer of 1969, because Fred Hampton spent some time in prison that summer. Well, before he had become head of the Panthers, uh, I, there had been an ice cream truck heist in, uh, in Maywood, and a good humor man was being, it was held down, and 71 bars of ice cream were passed out to the neighborhood kids in an elementary school parking lot. The parking lot was actually across the street from Fred Hampton's house. So the police went and got the good humor man to come and identify Fred Hampton. Uh, Fred said he didn't do it. But in any case, he goes to trial, uh, and they, they charge him with robbery, which is, should have been a theft, and he gets convicted. And uh, this is in, in uh, early uh, 1969. And so people thought, well, he's got no criminal background, there's no real damage here, property damage is minimal, no one was hurt. And the judge sort of at the time of, of his conviction says, well, court, you know, Give me, you know, before the sentencing, hear me tell me about his background and, you know, indicated he was going to give probation. Between the time of the conviction and his sentencing, there was a prosecutor in Chicago named Edward Hanrahan, who came from the same Irish tradition and Bridgeport neighborhood that the mayor, that the mayor Richard J. Daley, came from. And Hanrahan was the likely uh, successor to then Mayor Daley. Mm-hmm. And he was running on a strong law and order and anti gang platform. And he'd formed an anti-gang committee. He had given the famous shoot to kill or shoot to kill looters order after the, the uh, protests and riots uh, following Dr. King's death. Mm-hmm. And he was going to uh, uh, hope to succeed on this law and order platform, which was very attractive uh, beginning with the Nixon years all over the country. So Hanrahan gets on the TV and basically tells the judge, you better give him pen time, he's the head of the Panthers, and Hanrahan, uh, you know, considered the Panthers a gang. So when it came time for sentencing, Fred got two to five years in the Illinois Penitentiary. So in early 69, I think it was March, he gets sent 300 miles south to southern Illinois to the Menard Penitentiary. 
And uh, that summer was when our office started, and two of my partners were able to get him out on an appeal bond. Mm -hmm. And he came out in August and gave one of the most one of his most famous speeches, and my partner Flint Taylor and I were there and heard him speak. Uh, and the speech has also been memorialized in Mike Gray's wonderful documentary, The Murder of Fred Hampton. Um, in any case, he was very moving. He talked about uh, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't struggle, damn it, you don't deserve to win. Uh, peace for you if you're willing to fight for it. And that's also where he predicted his own demise and said, I'm not going to die slipping on a piece of ice or of a heart attack. I'm going to die in the people's movement. So I went to that uh, talk, uh, you know, interested in who this young, dynamic person was. I was only five years older than Fred Hampton. And uh, I, he made us all stand up and say, I'm a revolutionary. And I couldn't say it at first, because I sort of figured myself was a lawyer for the movement, but not of the movement. Uh -huh. But the more he said it and the more he got the crowd excited, uh, by the end I was shouting, I'm a revolutionary, just like everyone else. And did you become comfortable with the raised fist and power to the people? I did, because I understood that power to the people meant basically we needed redistribution so that the people can control things. Um, and, and some of those commitments and ideas, uh, I think, are probably as valid today as they were then. Maybe the methodology changes and the rhetoric changes, but I think we feel pretty helpless today watching the Congress and the Senate uh, deadlocked and, and making no progress on, on issues that are really life and death for people, whether it's jobs, health care, or the environment. Now, in this first part of 1969, when Hanrahan demonized and presumably framed Fred Hampton for this ice cream truck uh, incident, as you were able to get the information much later from the uh, files that were finally coughed up during the civil trial, the federal trial, uh, years later, uh, how early did Hanrahan collude with the FBI in terms of uh, Fred Hampton specifically as a target? Well, I think it was they were going along parallel courses. The FBI certainly supported Hanrahan and told him uh, and, 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 and urged him on. Whether the FBI divulged their secret program or just utilized Hanrahan's political ambitions to carry it out is something I don't completely know. Uh, while Hanrahan was organizing the Special Prosecutions Unit and staffing it with particularly brutal police, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was urging all FBI agents in all cities with Panther chapters to destroy, disrupt, and neutralize the Panthers, mm -hmm. and to destroy, cripple the Breakfast for Children program, uh, prevent the, and, and, and prevent the coalition of the Panthers. And one of his other mandates to FBI officers was uh, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the black nationalist movement. Well, to Hoover, any black uh, organization that had a national uh, office and identity, he considered a black nationalist group. Yeah. So SNCC and SCLC and the uh, Nation of Islam, he considered them all black nationalist group, and he considered the Panthers one, too. And when I saw those memoranda that your colleague Flint Taylor shared with me mm -hmm. in the early 1970s, it chilled me because uh, I, you know, grew up to trust my government. And while I knew that uh, not everything always happened according to the civics book uh, text, that, uh, you know, I generally gave the benefit of the doubt and, uh, you know, presumed that uh, most of what they did was on the up and up. Tell us when uh, they inserted William O'Neill 
the informant and provocateur, into the Panther inner circle of Fred Hampton? Very quickly after the Panthers formed, O'Neill showed up at the door within a month, or actually within two weeks of when the Panthers formed. And he came in claiming to be streetwise and uh, offered his services. And uh, he was a very much of a provocateur. He claimed to know the, the underlife uh, of what was going on, and he was also uh, somewhat mechanical, and he built something that he said, this is an electric chair, and the purpose of it is to scare informants. And he also was starting to build what he called a mortar that he said would shoot from the Panther office to City Hall, and Fred told him to disband it. But O'Neill, by virtue of joining and having certain skills, became head of security, and at one point was actually Fred's bodyguard. Uh, meanwhile, of course, he was working by the, for the FBI and reporting everything that Fred and the other Panthers did. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we get to the events of December 4th, in the fall of 1969, Fred Hampton and others rented an apartment on the west side on Madison Street, 2337, is that the number? That's right, 2337 West Monroe. Uh-huh. And uh, it was near Madison, right, Monroe and Madison? Right, it was a block away. Yeah. And I, I'm a little familiar with that area, too, because uh, I worked at a radio station in Oak Park that was on top of the Oak Park Arms Hotel. And I lived in Forest Park at the time, and so I, I was familiar with uh, the streets of the west side. Uh, WVON Radio was the, the voice of the black community. Uh, I was licensed to Cicero, but it was located in the, those west side communities and was very much a factor uh, in uh, communicating uh, with that minority community uh, and, and, you know, became, I think, a very important forum. So uh, talk about the apartment and the sequence of events uh, that led to O'Neill delivering a, uh, a sketch, a floor plan of that apartment to his FBI minder. Well, um, there, there had been numerous shootouts between or shoot-ins between the Panthers and the police at their office. Police had twice attacked the office with gunfire, the FBI once, and after every raid, the uh, police had come in and ransacked the place, poured the breakfast program out on the floor, and so forth. So there was this running battle. Uh, the police killed two brothers in the fall of 69, the Soto brothers, who were organizing for a stoplight between the housing project and the health clinic. And both of the Soto brothers were killed in, in what the police claimed there was self-defense, but it didn't match, that didn't match what the witnesses said or the physical evidence. But I think everybody was angered, and the this, this Soto brothers were only a few blocks from the Panther office. After that, on, on, in November, there had been a shootout between a former Panther named Jake Winters and two Chicago police. Winters and the two police were killed. This was on November 13th. That was the day that O'Neill's control called him in and said, I want a floor plan of Fred Hampton's apartment. So O'Neill goes in and gets a floor plan of the apartment, uh, complete with where Fred Hampton slept. And he gives it to his FBI control. Um, and then very quickly after that, the uh, Roy Mitchell, his control, met with Hanrahan and Hanrahan's police. So I think the FBI used the anti-Panther uh, uh, sentiment among the police to set up this raid. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm reading here now from Chapter 9, and our December, 9, our December 1 meeting at the People's Law Office, 
Uh, Dennis, one of your partners, announced Fred had the $6,000 needed to buy the Panther headquarters building. The Chicago police had consistently put pressure on the Panthers' landlord to evict them. Owning their own building made sense. Because I, that's referring to you, Jeff Haas, had done some housing work, I volunteered to go and help complete the purchase. I relished the idea of working with Fred, though I was a bit intimidated by the reverential respect people had for him. I called the Panther office, set up a meeting with Fred for the next day. And so that was your first visit to this building? I think it was my first visit to the Panther office, yes. I had been by there, and I'd met with Panthers on several occasions, both in court and at the, at the location of incidents. But I really think that was my first uh, visit to the Panther headquarters. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, take some time here, Jeff, and walk us through the critical events of December 4. Well, I'll do it from my perspective. Uh, on December 2nd, I met with this young, dynamic Fred Hampton. Uh, we worked out the details of them buying it. And as I'm walking out the door, I just see Fred... Uh, interacting with all the other Panthers, saying, get to the breakfast program on time, sell your quarter of papers, come to political education classes. And he was just bouncing off his energy, and it seemed like the Panthers worked off of his energy. And he, like he was a modern-day rapper, uh, the staccato back and forth between him and them. And thir- that was on the afternoon of December 2nd, and I was supposed to meet him two days later after I'd drawn up the papers uh, for, to purchase the building. But at 6 o'clock a.m. on December 4th, 36 hours later, my partner Skip Andrew knocked on my door, and when I opened it, he said, the chairman is dead. The pigs vamped on his crib this morning. And I couldn't believe it. Uh, I couldn't believe that I'd just seen this person who was bigger than life, and now I was told he was dead. So my partners went to the apartment to gather the evidence, and I went and interviewed the survivors. And I walked in, and there was Deborah Johnson, Fred's fiance, eight and a half months pregnant with their, their who turned out to be their son. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed her, and uh, you know, I said, uh, and, you know, I'll never forget that, and I, and I do uh, talk about that in the book, and uh, the way I remembered it, and the way I put it in the book, it was cold in the tiny windowless interview room at the Wood Street Police Station. I looked across the wooden table at the large-boned woman with a short afro who was shaking and sobbing. Deborah Johnson's patterned nightgown outlined her protruding belly, revealing her pregnancy. Fred never really woke up, she said. He was lying there when they pulled me out of the bedroom. She paused. And then I asked, two pigs went back into the bedroom. One of them said, he's barely alive, he'll barely make it. I heard two shots, then I heard, he's good and dead now. Fred's fiance looked at me with sad, swollen eyes. What can you do? I couldn't think of any reply. I couldn't bring Fred back to life. So that morning on December 4th, my partners gathered the evidence, and I interviewed the survivors. Meanwhile, Hanrahan and the police, it turned out, who raided the apartment were the uh, special prosecutions unit that Hanrahan had set up. And they went to that apartment that morning with shotguns, handguns, a rifle, and a 45 caliber automatic machine gun. And when, when uh, Hanrahan holds his press conference after Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were dead, Fred was shot in his bed. Mark Clark was shot at the front door. Four other Panthers were wounded, and three others were just beaten up. So a few hours after the raid, Hanrahan goes on TV and with the weapons that were seized from the Panther apartment in front of him and describes how his police were serving a search warrant and were unknowingly attacked by the Panthers 
and surprised, and the Panthers broke three ceasefires. And he specifically pointed to a 45 caliber uh, uh, pistol and said, this is the weapon that Fred Hampton used to shoot at the police. So he wanted, he expected that he would offer this raid. He expected his political career would soar. Would soar. But ironically, what happened was the police never sealed the apartment. So Skip and Flint and my other law partners went there and started, photo- and with Mike Gray, who was making a documentary, and they photographed all the walls of the apartment, and they started to gather the physical evidence. And between what the survivors had told me and what the physical evidence showed, it wasn't a shoot out, it was a shoot in. Indeed. Ninety shots were, over 90 shots were fired by the police. The only Panther shot came from the weapon of Mark Clark, which went outward and upward, and it was sort of like an involuntary shot after he was hit because it landed in the ceiling of the, of the foyer right outside the front door. Mm-hmm. So the other papers came out there, and they saw the uh, apartment, and the Panthers seized the moment, and they started taking tours through there. And people saw, because you can tell the difference between an entrance hole and an exit hole, that all of the direction of all the bullets were from where the police entered toward the Panthers. Yeah. And all of a sudden you had uh, a particularly black leaders who had never really spoken up much before. Ralph Metcalf, uh, who was a congressman, spoke out against the raid. Uh, Harold Washington, a young state senator, spoke up and condemned the raid. Later a mayor. Later mayor, yes. Uh, Renault Robinson, the head of the Afro-American Politoman League, called it a police murder. Yeah, he was a courageous guy. He was a very courageous guy. And all of a sudden, Hanrahan found himself on the defensive because, as you know, you could not get elected uh, to the Democratic uh, ticket unless you had support in the black community. And the black community, while it was divided about the Panthers, was not uh, seemed to be come together around the murder of this young black man in his bed, a young black leader at 4.30 in the morning, somebody who many people had heard Fred and knew how dynamic he was. And they understood that he, it wasn't that he was going to pick up a gun. That wasn't their fear. It was because he had the ability to, to unify and electrify people and, and inspire people to do things they didn't think they could do. And, and Jeff, can you uh, summon any other case of a, a significant police action where they did not seal the crime scene and collect the evidence themselves? Why did they just leave this uh, as a, a wasteland? Well, that's the $64,000 question. And, you know, you could speculate that they didn't care, they were so arrogant, they didn't care, or that they hoped that the evidence would somehow be, uh, uh, um, you know, torn up or broken up in a way uh, that, that convoluted that it couldn't be used in court. You could say they were afraid of the response from the black community. Um, we don't know exactly why, or they were so anxious to grab the weapons and hold their press conference that they forgot their normal procedure. And, and, and uh, do, do you think that they thought they wouldn't need a cover-up initially? <laughs> I think so. I think that all Hanrahan thought he had to say was, we went to the, the, the Panthers had weapons, and we took these weapons away, and it's unfortunate that two Panthers were killed, or maybe it's fortunate, uh, depending on how you look at it, but he thought Panthers with weapons, that, you know, they get what they deserve. And so uh, that wasn't the way it went down, and it wasn't the way people reacted. And, of course, the police story was exposed as a lie. Hanrahan became defensive. He, held that, he, he had, gave an exclusive story to the Chicago Tribune, 
gave them photographs with two black dots that he said were proof that Fred Hampton fired. They were the bullet holes at the back door. And when those turned out to be nail heads, Hanrahan's credibility decreased even more. And, of course, he had to drop the charges against the survivors who he had been charging with attempted murder. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about this guy, Hanrahan. I, I remember Mike Royko, the famous uh, Chicago journalist, referring to him as Fast Eddie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he gave him that moniker or if someone else did. I had one encounter with Hanrahan, and it would have been in about 75 or early 76. I don't recall specifically he was running for office, and I had to interview him because I had given airtime to his opponent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, again, I don't know if he was running for re-election as state's attorney or uh, he briefly uh, ran for Congress, I, I believe. Uh, at any rate, I do recall meeting him and just thinking what a slime ball he was. And uh, I do think that I asked him about the, the Panther case, and he just dismissed it uh, with a combination of contempt and some sort of an excuse about how he couldn't talk about it. Um, what, what was your sense of him both before and after the raid and throughout this uh, lengthy, almost 13-year trial process? Well, I think, as, as I said, he was ambitious, and he wanted to rise on this law and order platform. Even He called black people animals who, who were in gangs. And so he hoped to, there was this whole thing in response to both the riots and the civil rights movement fit in across the country, this law and order craze, and I think he hoped to, to capitalize on that and to become the new Mayor Daley. And his arrogance led him to this press conference, and so... When it became clearer and clearer that the police story was a lie, uh, Hanrahan never backed off. He just scoffed at the evidence and said, you know, basically told people, it's your duty to believe the police. This is the police story. How can you not believe it, even though it was totally contradicted by the physical evidence? And he kind of went down with the ship and uh, continued to support the police. And I think at one point Daly finally said, this guy's a political liability. Uh, they didn't slate him to run as state's attorney, but he won the primary anyway, and then he lost the election for state's attorney. And as you said, eventually he lost running. He ran for mayor once, and he ran for Congress once, and Hanrahan never won an election. So he kind of, I guess there was a metamorphosis from this very arrogant guy on the, uh, with, with uh, political ambitions to this sort of tragic uh, has-been who was, became a political liability, and he never won another election, and uh, he lost prominence, and we sort of used to see him wandering around the law library at the federal building. He didn't even have respect as a lawyer after, you know, he kept telling the lies, and they kept getting, he kept getting exposed. Mm-hmm. And uh, talk a little bit about the reaction to Fred's murder by the black community, and in particular, Jesse Jackson, who was uh, running uh, Operation Breadbasket, uh, which was the precursor to uh, uh, PUSH, the People United to Save Humanity, which was uh, his long-running umbrella group. Well, Jesse Jackson and the Panthers had had some disagreements. Jesse Jackson worked a lot on businesses and trying to get uh, supporting black businesses. The Panthers were working more in the community around the issue of education and police brutality and so forth. Uh, on some issues, I think they were aligned, and on some there were disagreements. Um, and so when Fred was, when, when Fred was uh, killed, um, and we, I interviewed the survivors, the, they told me they had heard the police talking, and they were going to come raid Bobby Rush, 
Russia's office house the, ne- the next day. Yeah. So I ended up, uh, of course, telling Rush not to be home, and he wasn't, and they raided it. And they claimed they found some marijuana there, which I doubt, since he knew they were coming. But anyway, they were looking for him, and we were afraid they might do to Rush what they had done to Fred Hampton and said, how can he be safe? So the Panthers said, well, would you talk to Jesse Jackson? So Flint and I went down and met with Jesse Jackson and said, well, Rush would like to turn himself in publicly. What about at Operation Breadbasket Saturday morning? And that's when he he did. A little hesitant. The Panthers have been accusing me of this and that. Mm Mm-hmm. And we said, well, we were pretty sure they wouldn't do that. And, and Jesse did these Saturday preaching sessions. They were broadcast live right. on WVON, and at times they were televised, too, right? They were. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, Jesse Jackson got totally on board. He says, bring Rush in, uh, and we'll welcome into the community. But didn't he first ask that uh, he wanted to make sure that he wouldn't be further dissed by Panthers? Right. He says, I don't want them, you know, on my back, you know. I don't want to do this and have the Panthers attacking me uh-huh. and accusing me of this and that, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he's, you know, so, you know, he didn't want to make that gesture and then turned around and, and uh, you know, it was understandable. Uh, I want to tell you a brief story of my uh, near encounter with Jesse Jackson at that time. On my radio show, um, I permitted a local muckraker, a guy named Sherman Skolnick, to come on. And he'd written a series of articles, and I think he had one of those early uh, telephone hotlines where you'd call and he'd Mm -hmm. kind of spiel out on a recording about what his newest uh, uh, exposés were. Mm -hmm. And he had some pretty dramatic charges that Jesse Jackson was running a shakedown operation and that he would uh, confront Miller Brewing or uh, the Jewel food, uh, food store chain, supermarket chain, and uh, shame them into these uh, contracts. And the contracts were between the uh, business and Operation Push, uh, the, the successor to Breadbasket, and uh, he put his brother Noah in charge of placing uh, his friends and supporters in jobs with the companies that that he had confronted, so uh, I th- we had very strict rules at the time about equal time and personal attack, and so before I invited Skolnick on the program, I called Operation Push and I said we're going to do this, and would you like to uh, have Reverend Jackson participate, or would you like to send a representative? And uh, they they did not respond to repeated offers, so I did the show with Skolnick. And two weeks later, uh, Jackson uh, confronts my radio station manager. The manager takes him out to lunch. And the end result was that uh, ABC wrote a check for $10,000, which is a fair amount of money at the time, uh, as a way of making this problem go away. And I was angered by it because I didn't feel I had done anything wrong. And I wanted Jackson to face the charges and explain how he operated. And I wasn't taking a position of backing Skolnick. I simply permitted him to offer his information, his charges. And I have to say it was fairly well documented. Uh, Skolnick was a weird guy. Uh, but uh, I felt that the, the information he was offering was, was worth people hearing about and considering. And I also felt that uh, Jackson or his representatives should respond. And instead of responding to me... Uh, they had lawyers contact the station's lawyers, and basically it was a kind of a shakedown. You know, I'm aware of the accusations, 
And I also think probably the line between a shakedown and when you go to a corporation that has a public business and that does does business in the black community, mm-hmm. and you say, look, if you want to, you know, uh, we want you to start hiring black executives, and we and maybe we want you to support our program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the line between is that a shakedown? Is that blackmail? Is that just good political muscle? You know. You know, I don't know. And yeah, and, and I'm not trying to try that case today. I'm simply yeah. offering, you know, the two points of view that were presented to me at that time and the curious response of Jackson. Instead of saying, you know, I want to face this and explain to you and and show you that Sherman Skolnick is lying, uh, instead they they went through the back door. Well, you know, you know that case better than I do, so... You know, I don't have any more information on what was going on. I am aware of Skolnick's uh, accusations, and I also know that Jesse Jackson did get uh, jobs for a lot of people, and he may also have gotten money for his organization. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeff, one of the sidebars in your book that fascinates me is that you ended up representing some of the prisoners at Attica uh, following the—they uh, the, the, the they took over the prison— uh, they had demands for reforms and uh, civil rights that they wanted redressed. And famously, Nelson Rockefeller sent in armed goons, and uh, there were a number of people killed. Talk a little bit about Attica and how it informed the work that you did for many years following that to win justice for the survivors of Fred Hampton. Well, there was, as you said, I, I went in Attica, I think it was two days after the uh, uh, after the massacre, I guess, and uh, after the prison was on lockdown. Attica was the September 9th to the 13th of 1971, and I think I entered the prison on the 15th or 16th as soon as they lifted the the, uh, sort of blocking of any attorney visits. And I happened to interview some of the Attica brothers, including Big Black, who was one of the leaders of of the Attica Rebellion. And it was interesting to see after after having gone through the Hampton thing in which Hanrahan initially said all the Panthers had fired at the police and they broke the ceasefires and the Panthers were firing, and that turned out to be a lie. Uh, the stories that were put out at Attica about how the men inside had cut the throats uh, of, of the guards um, turned out to be a lie, too, because, in fact, the guards were shot and killed. Uh, so when I heard these stories of these the guys inside who were trying to negotiate some pretty, just for humane treatment, um, and then the, 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 the National Guard comes and opens fire, uh, or actually the State Patrol comes and opens fire on them. Like uh, I went to a, a, a restaurant the next night, and I heard them bragging about it. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. And they opened fire, and they killed over 30 prisoners and 12 hostages or guards. Mm-hmm. Um, and the men inside, of course, were unarmed, so it was like shooting uh, uh, people with, uh, you know, were defenseless. Yeah. And Big Black, who was seen as the head of security, was personally tortured. Cigarettes were put on him. He was stripped naked. A football was put under his chin, and he was told while he, the cigarettes were being put out, if the football dropped to the ground, they were going to kill him. So we heard about these really sadistic stories that were uh, of what was done to the prisoners at Attica. And so it did inform me about we'd seen what the state could do in Chicago, and then we saw what they could do in New York. Next, we will talk about the long-running legal efforts to get the government to tell the truth about the murder of Fred Hampton 
and uh, the ultimate result. We're talking with attorney Jeff Haas, the author of this new book about Fred Hampton called The Assassination of Fred Hampton. The Peter B. Collins Show is sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for more information and a special offer from the Organic Wine Company. Mavis and the Staples Singers. The Staples family had a nightclub on the south side of Chicago. And the patriarch, Pop Staples, was a fan of my radio show. He called frequently, very late at night, between 4 and 5 in the morning. And he was a daily supporter who was very much afraid to go public with his concerns about discrimination and uh, the issues related to the Black Panthers. But I think he used music like this song to try to express the feelings that he was afraid to express in public. And Jeff has the lies upon lies upon lies, the cover-ups, the efforts to obstruct justice. They threw so many roadblocks in your way, and you recount them deftly in the book. Uh, select three or four, if you would, and explain to our listeners how they used every available method to try to block disclosure of what really happened in the death of Fred Hampton and to prevent his survivors from winning justice and some sort of, uh, of a settlement for their loss. Well, of course, I've already gone over the efforts of Hanrahan and the police to lie and tell about what happened in the raid. Uh, a couple of years, we filed a civil suit against the police and the raiders, and it came out a couple of years later in, in 73 that William O'Neill had been an informant in the party and had been head of security and, Pam, and Fred Hampton's bodyguard. And we had a lot of uh, information. Uh, there was information that Fred had possibly been drugged that night because he never really woke up right. when, thi- when, you know, when things were going on. So we filed a civil suit. We charged a conspiracy to murder Fred Hampton. And when O'Neill got disclosed, we added O'Neill. And at first, O'Neill denied that he had anything to do with the raid. And the FBI denied it. And they said we'd produced all, they'd produced all their documents about it. There'd been a federal grand jury, which had never learned anything about the federal raid. Meanwhile, we had learned about this COINTELPRO program from the burglary of an FBI office in Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. So we said, is there a connection between COINTELPRO and this raid? And the FBI denied it for years and years. And finally, a U.S. attorney turned over to us one day a floor plan. And it was the floor plan of Fred's apartment that O'Neill and his control had prepared and given to the FBI. They still denied a connection until we discovered documents that showed that it was a COINTELPRO action that they gave this floor plan to the FBI and told them that there were weapons in the apartment. Um, 
Meanwhile, the judge was sitting on a document that showed the FBI had sent Jeff Fort, the head of the Rangers, a hit letter saying the Panthers were trying to kill him and they were seeking retaliatory action by Fort. I'd sat on that document. And we started the trial. There again, them claiming they'd given us everything. A month and a half into the trial, we got 200 volumes of files that they had not produced, one of which was a what we called the bonus document. And it was a document that gave $300 bonus to O'Neill because he'd provided the information which led to what one agent called the success of the raid. So we had a pretty strong case. Later we discovered a document that showed that Hanrahan and the FBI had been in a conspiracy to cover up what happened. So armed with all this, uh, we went to trial, and of course the, the, the best friend of the FBI at trial was the judge. He was an 80-year-old judge from Alabama. He hated the Panthers, he hated us, their lawyers, and he particularly were accusing the government of a conspiracy to murder. So he, he joined the FBI in hiding all of this stuff and telling the jury that it wasn't significant. He was reported saying on the outside, they'll never prove this conspiracy. So the judge did everything in his power to defeat us. And I remember a couple in court, I was questioning Hanrahan about this document that referred to the deal. And so I said, Hanrahan, didn't you, you know, Mr. Hanrahan, didn't you make a deal with the FBI? And the other side objected, and the judge says, you can't go into that. And I said, Judge, you can't cover up the cover-up. Yeah. And he said, Mr. Hodge, you go to jail. So I spent that night in the MCC in Chicago, uh, and I was <laughs> spent the night trying to figure out how I could get even with the judge. So when I went into court the next morning after I was released, the report, sure enough, there was a reporter there, and he said, well, what did you think of the MCC? And I said, well, I didn't like the conditions much, but the company was a hell of an improvement over Judge Perry's courtroom. <laughs> so he held both Flint Taylor and myself in contempt numerous times, locked us each up once. There were many contempts pending when the case was over. And, and he kind of used that as a, a, a hammer over your head. He used it as a hammer over our head. And, of course, we, uh, we used to call him a, uh, an activist seeking combat. And as soon as we walked in the courtroom, his ire would get up and he would get angry. And we knew it. And one day we were in court and I said, Judge, uh, we want these documents. Uh, and they're not producing them for him. And he said, Mr. Haz, you want everything. And I said, no, I don't, Judge. I just want a fair trial. And he reacted and said, no, and you're not going to get it. <laughs> and the court reporter took that down. Anyway, after 18 months of trial against well-funded U.S. attorneys, Department of Justice and U.S. attorneys and city and county paid private lawyers, while the jury is deliberating, and the judges give them a set of instructions, which he figures there's no way they'll decide for the, for the plaintiffs, for the Panthers. He told, them if the pan, told the jury if the Panthers had weapons or if they had anti-police rhetoric, uh, then they should have to decide for the for the defendants. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they did have weapons, and they did use anti-police rhetoric. But still, the jury was hung. So unable to get the jury to do his bidding, he dismissed the case. Eighteen months later, uh, set a $100,000 appeal bond and set a uh, cost against us, our clients, for $100,000. And, and talk a little bit about the disparity, because you made a reference there. <clears throat> that Hanrahan and some of the other defendants in your case had uh, high-priced lawyers who were being paid by Cook County uh, to keep the cover-up in place. 
And meanwhile, you couldn't even afford the transcripts that you needed to properly conduct the case and, more importantly, uh, to frame an appeal. Absolutely. Uh, they had the, 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 one of the lawyers for, the, for Hanrahan had gotten the court reporter to say that he, he would charge them $3 for every page uh, as long as he could charge each one of them, the city, county, and feds, they'd each pay $3 a page so that we would have to. Whereas the normal rule was the, the parties would divide it, and we would have each paid 75 cents. So they priced us out of the transcript, and then, of course, uh, hoped that we would never be able to file an appeal. It was 33,000 pages that had been taken down. Mm. Um, and we were a young office. I was three years out of law school. Flint was about one. I, know, I guess when we started the trial, I was seven years out of law school, and Flint was about three. And you were making $300 a month. I was making $300 a month. That was our normal salary. Other people at our office had had to take on some paying cases or even other jobs so that they could keep the office going. Mm-hmm. And, and, and John Coughlin and Camillo Vellini were on the city and county payroll drawing $60, $75 an hour, which doesn't seem much, but at that time was a lot for yeah. the thousands of hours they put in or, or claimed to put in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were making, they would sit there and do their timesheets while we were, you know, couldn't afford to go out to lunch. Yeah. And, uh, not to mention the U.S. attorney, and, and uh, they brought in a special lawyer from the Justice Department to defend the FBI. So we, you, the, the inequality of resources, uh, certainly uh, they were expecting would, would be determinative. But we got support for there were a number of black lawyers. Jim Montgomery worked with us doing a large part of the trial. Herb Reed from uh, uh, Howard University uh, worked with us. The, uh, the Lawyers Guild had supported us and National Conference of Black Lawyers. And also also the Center for Constitutional Rights, which I didn't realize was active at the time. I became aware of them when they worked on the plight of uh, Haitian boat people, mm-hmm. and I've been in close contact with them over the last few years related to Guantanamo and other critical uh, civil liberties issues. So that that was interesting to me. Well, yeah, and the Lawyers Guild, and th- there was an overlap there because many of the Lawyers Guild attorneys work at the center. And I talk in the book about how Arthur Canoy, who had been Kunstler's partner in the South and done civil rights cases, came in and said, you guys can do it, you can file a civil suit, you can sue them, and we can find out what happened here. And he was sort of a cheerleader for, as, as we said, uh, sue the bastards was the, was the slogan that he used. Uh, so we did, anyway, it's seven years after the trial started. We've just been dismissed with $100,000 cost and $100,000 appeal bond. It's, we're feeling pretty low. And I think if we hadn't been representing the families of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and hadn't remembered the dare to struggle, dare to win, if you don't struggle, damn it, you don't deserve to win, so we licked our wounds, and we got enough money to get a down payment on the transcript, and we finally ordered it, and we wrote a 250-page brief outlining all the facts and the evidence, that which had, been gotten, had, had gotten into evidence and that which hadn't. One chapter was headed, and you're not going to get it, which was the judge's quote about a fair trial. And the last line of our brief was power to the people. Hmm. And uh, we got an amazing, uh, amazing uh, panel. Uh, in which Luther Swigert wrote a majority opinion and found that we had presented more than sufficient evidence to hold to charge the conspiracy between Hanrahan, the police, and the FBI. And they further held that the hiding of documents um, by the FBI and their lawyers could be used against them as evidence of guilt at a subsequent trial. So, Judge Perry, uh, while you didn't know it at the time, 
laid the groundwork for an appeal that got real traction. But before we get to the, the final settlement here, uh, you had a split with uh, your co-counsel, uh, James Montgomery. And he, uh, I didn't know him, but you describe him as a kind of patrician guy who had a little more gravitas in this, this uh, jaundiced courtroom of Judge Perry. But at a certain point, he took uh, key plaintiffs away from you. He did. I think people were a little disillusioned. And uh, the, the judge had this gut reaction to Flint and me, which anything we asked for is, was clear before we didn't get. Now, was it partly the white boy with the afro? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was partly our style, because we represented the Panthers and, you know, uh, you know supported them. And he didn't like, uh, mainly didn't like our accusations. Probably one thing we were not was diplomatic, you mm-hmm. know, and we didn't we didn't hesitate to call it a murder, and we also didn't hesitate to call the judge being part of the cover up. It earned his alienation, mm-hmm. and so I think after the trial, he went. They went with him, uh, hoping that they could somehow uh, smooth their way to a to a quicker settlement. Mm-hmm. It didn't turn out that way. We did all the work. We got the appeal bond lifted. We got the cost lifted. We wrote the brief. We particularly brought in the FBI role and emphasized that in our brief. And so uh, when the opinion came down, it was a response to our brief and our allegations, and it confirmed exactly what we said. Mm-hmm. Eventually, two years after that, we did get a settlement for all of the plaintiffs, the families of Hampton and Clark, the four wounded people, and the three people who had been arrested and just beaten up. And that was in the amount of $1.85 million. And then you had to wrestle with Montgomery over the split of that money. We did. <laughs> That's uh, that after all that work. And uh, Montgomery said, well, you guys weren't in it for the money, so I should get the money. And we weren't in it for the money, but we had spent, I don't know, I think how many thousands of hours we had spent in, and we felt we deserved at least to get paid. I think it turned out to be $20 an hour yeah. for all those hours. Uh-huh. Well, Jeff, this is a powerful story, and I thank you for recounting it, but I can't let you go without asking you to give me comments on the current state of the creeping police state in the United States and the role of the FBI and other federal agencies in clamping down and rolling back our civil rights and our privacy rights since 9-11. Well, I think that those are good points, and when I was writing an article for The Nation... I discovered that when the when the church committee was investigating Watergate and COINTELPRO and trying to put some barriers and limitations on the CIA and FBI and make them uh, 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 accountable and, and responsible under the Freedom of Information Act, the two people in the Ford administration who opposed it most were Ford's chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, and his aide, Dick Cheney. So this, this, this fight against... Uh, the executive, the supreme power of the executive and executive wrongdoing uh, continues to this day. And the other side, of course, had their day under Bush in which they established the Patriot Act, the right to detention, and basically uh, took away the right of habeas corpus, spying, and so forth. And those things have not in any way or only been partially dismantled. And they're still in place, and I still think the government spies on us. And of course, with, the, with uh, the Internet and so forth, has a greater ability to watch and listen to what we do. And I think there are other programs. Uh, and, and one of the things I think of is, uh, is a little more subtle. Maybe it's subtle. I don't know. 
But I think the, the, the threat of black rebellion and young black people being restless is dealt with today, uh, not just with repression, but I think mass incarceration is what's happening today. And more and more things are being criminalized. And as jobs disappear, the penalties for crimes increase in length, and our country has been filled with prisons as a way to deal with black people, both because they're, quote, not needed anymore or because they're a political threat. And I think there's a wonderful new book called The New Jim Crow Laws, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, which really documents this. So I think you have government top-down, executive spying, repression, and so forth, and I think you also have cutting off the grassroots by this sort of criminalization and mass incarceration. Jeff, you don't take credit for in the book, but I'd like to give you credit, you and your colleagues and those who pursued this fight for justice and exposure of Pro for as long as you did, because I believe you contributed to the framing of the FISA law that uh, for a time, <laughs> until the summer of 2008, uh, required a court order in uh, consistency with the Fourth Amendment uh, before you could wiretap uh, a U.S. person in the United States. And we saw that uh, the Bush administration openly defied the FISA law, and then Democrats uh, joined ranks with Republicans to cover over that, to legalize in a uh, retroactive way the illegal wiretapping and diversion of emails that occurred on a massive scale, and then to grant immunity to the phone companies who were complicit. And now we see the Obama administration has extended both the practice of this surveillance and the legal cover for it by maintaining the immunity clause and knocking down lawsuits that would uh, seek to expose this a massive and illegal surveillance using state secret privilege and uh, other tools at their disposal. What's your comment on that? I wish I could disagree with you, Peter, but I, I, I see and I'm appalled at the same thing that you just mentioned. We don't see a rollback. As a matter of fact, we seem another executive who seems to be willing and desirous of having the same powers that the Bush administration usurped. And I'm, I've been disappointed a, a lot in that, and I think we have to reignite the movement that fought against Bush around these civil liberties. Yes, indeed. Well, Jeff, again, I thank you for writing the book. Thanks for taking this time with me today. I hope that people who were not familiar with Fred Hampton and the story of his murder will pick up your book, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther. And uh, there's more information available at your website, HamptonBook.com. Thank you, Peter. And, of course, they can get the book at Amazon or at their local independent bookstore, which is uh, what I hope they'll do. And the website does give a lot more information, as you said, www.hamptonbook.com. Jeffrey Haas, H-A-A-S. Thank you very much. You're a great American. Peter, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. I hope you will share it with your friends. Email me, Peter, at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling